evening. Glad you're here. Hope you're glad you're here too. We're still experimenting a little bit with the Sunday evening format. So uh, this time, let's do this. How about if we hold questions until the very end? We'll, we'll treat them at the end, if there are any, and perhaps uh, questions that occur to you, you could jot them down and they may be answered along the way, and if not, we'll, uh, we'll address them here at the end. This evening, I want to talk to you about servant leadership. It's the second in our series here with regard to biblical leadership. It really is foundational. Last week, we looked at some of the foundational roles in the church. We talked about whose church it is, who establishes the rules, that sort of thing, and I want to lay this additional piece of foundation work for us this evening with regard to who are qualified for leadership in God's church. What, what are the characteristics of one that is qualified? And one of the things that stands out is servanthood. Entitled this, The Way Up is Down. Recently, in an issue of World Magazine, I saw an advertisement for a home study curriculum that you can take that will help you become a, a good conversationalist. The advertising pitch really is that people who are good conversationalists succeed in business. Doors open for them and they become very successful. And you know, that's probably true. Good conversationalists meet people easily. They make good first impressions and undoubtedly that's very helpful in a business context. You know, if you have a poor or stunted vocabulary and sort of annoying speech habits, that can be an impediment for you in terms of your movement in the, in the corporate world. But this evening I want to talk to you about how to achieve greatness in the spiritual realm. How does one advance to a position of leadership in the church of God? Is it done through the techniques of corporate America? Is it about academic degrees? Is it about connections, political connections, friends in the right places? Is it about office, office politics or self-promotion? Is it about working long hours? Well, no, you know the answer to all of this, don't you? It's by a different method, isn't it? Because the kingdom of God operates by a different methodology of the kingdom of the world. In fact, you can almost be positive each and every time that whatever the way the world does it, Christ will do it just the opposite, in just the opposite fashion. Humility is the key to greatness. Humility is the key to greatness in the kingdom of God because God has firmly set himself against the proud. In fact, Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 5 says the following, Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. And James says it this way, doesn't he? In James chapter 4, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to whom? To the humble. Even the Apostle Paul, who was an amazing church planter, mightily used of God, had opportunity to, to go to the third heaven and to see things and hear things that mortal man does not see and hear. And God gave him a thorn in the flesh, didn't he, to keep him humble, that he might not exalt himself based on what he had been through. 
Even the greatest man to ever live in the Old Testament was Moses. And it's really fascinating because in Numbers chapter 12 and verse 3, there's just a little verse tucked in there, and it says, Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. That is an amazing epitaph for a man's life. Moses began in obscurity, didn't he? And he rose to prominence in Israel. But he rose to prominence, or not in Israel, in Egypt rather, but he rose to prominence in sort of a secular sense. And God would not use him as his deliverer in that way, but he took him into the Midianite desert, didn't he, for 40 years, and he humbled him, he put him down there in the desert, that he might then take him from that desert and elevate him and make him the deliverer of the nation of Israel. That is the way God works. God wants people of humble hearts to be in leadership in his church. In fact, the Savior himself, in Matthew chapter 11, described himself as gentle and humble of heart. So here we go this evening. Are you ready? We're going to see three truths about the path of greatness. Three truths about the path of greatness so that we will understand the need for servant leadership here at Foothill Bible Church. Pretty simple outline. Three paths or three truths about the path of greatness so that we will understand the need for spiritual leadership. Open your Bible to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, we're going to find these three truths there for us, beginning in verse 35, Mark chapter 10. The outline's simple, it even alliterates, which makes me happy. First, the first truth is the request for greatness is serious. The request for greatness is serious. That's verses 35 to 37. The request for greatness is serious. Next, the requirement for greatness is suffering. It's verses 38 through 40. And then finally, the road to greatness is service. Verses 41 to 45. Okay, the request, the request is serious. The requirement is suffering. The road is service. Look here with me now at the text. Beginning in verse 35, And James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to him, saying to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit in your glory, one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with, the, with which I am to be baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And hearing this, the ten be began to feel indignant with James and John, and calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom. For many. 
The context here for Mark chapter 10 is they are on their way to Jericho. They're heading up and to Jericho on the, the way ultimately to Jerusalem for the final trip. This is the end of Jesus' public three-year ministry. He is heading now to Jerusalem for the final events, the events of the Passion Week, which will culminate in his crucifixion. In fact, look with me at verse 32, which is right before this section in context. You see there in verse 32, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit upon him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. They didn't really understand what he was talking about, but they did sense that something was going to happen that the, the final climax of his life was at hand. They were at least perceptive enough to figure that out. And, and so, because of that, they thought it was time to, to put their bid in for their share of the kingdom. In whatever form it was going to come, however it was going to happen, and in fact, many scholars think there was a great entourage of people that were following him here on his way up to Jerusalem. There was a tremendous excitement that was growing. And in fact, we know, don't we, that Palm Sunday, the day when he finally came into the city, the crowds went out to him. And they were saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The, the Davidic king was here. And so there was a tremendous fervor and excitement in the city and among his followers. And so it was at this moment that these disciples decided we need to strike now and get our share of the glory. And so James and John, they make their move. They make their move here. But lest we be too hard on them, just a few days later, really, when they are sitting around the table at the Last Supper, there's an argument that arises there at the, around the table, isn't there? And do you remember what they're arguing about there? Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This was very much on their mind. So it's not just poor James and John, although we're going to pick on them tonight. It's all the disciples are all angling with each other to figure out how do I get top billing? How do I get the best seat in the house? How do I come early and get the front row is what they're after. Can't imagine what Christ must have been thinking in such things, his mind is full of his impending passion, the agony that stands before him as he's going to bear the sin of the world. And his disciples who have walked with him for three years are worrying about who's going to be number one. Who's number one? How often we imitate them, my beloved. Hmm? How often we imitate that same attitude. We are angling for position in the kingdom of God. So let's look first at their request for greatness, a serious request. Beginning here in verse 35, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, come up to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. <laughs> I know. I can't help this. When I read this, it reminds me of what a, what a what a little girl might say to her father. How's that? 
A little girl might come up to her father and ask a similar type of question. Daddy, we want you to buy us whatever we ask. That kind of a question, isn't it? Here's James and John. They are members of the inner circle, are they not? They, along with Peter, are the ones, in fact, look back to Mark chapter 9 and verse 2. Pick it up in verse 1, and he was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. James and John are part of the inner circle. They're part of the, the group of three men that are closest to Christ. They are the ones who have been most privileged. They are the ones who have witnessed some of his most spectacular miracles. They are the ones who were there at his transfiguration. And so, they think perhaps they have an inside track, at least James and John. And we know they're brothers. In fact, in a parallel account over in Matthew chapter 20, we find out that it was their mother who actually came as the spokesperson and, and voiced this request for them. Now, if she was the sister of Mary, which many Bible scholars think is true, then it would be that perhaps she is relying on her family status here to come before her nephew, Christ, and ask from him this amazing request. They're asking for a monarch's favor. They're asking for a blank check. A wise king would put a limit on such requests. Do you remember when Herod spoke to the dancing girl who had pleased him so much, do you remember what he said to her? He said, I will give you up to what? Half my kingdom. He put a top end on the request. That's what they're asking of Christ. They are coming to him and they're saying, him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever it is we ask of you. We want an unlimited blank check. Look at verse 36. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? See, Jesus refuses to fall into their trap. He refuses to be drawn in. He refuses to assume the role of a sovereign monarch who is dispensing favor according to his own pleasure or, or will. Not only that, but his question really causes James and John to reveal the true motives of what's in their heart. Hmm? He asks them and says, what is it you want me to do for you? And their true nature now will come out in their request. They said to him, verse 37, grant that we may sit in your glory, one on your right and one on your left. They don't want to just be in the kingdom. They don't want to just have a place of rulership or leadership in the kingdom. They want what? The top two positions, one here and one here. They want to be sitting either side of the king's throne. They want to be the grand vizier of the kingdom, the prime minister, the one who dispenses power. It was ambition, not loyalty, that moved them to make their requests. Again, John refers to himself later as the disciple what? Whom Jesus loved. Perhaps at this time he's relying on that sort of relationship. We don't know. We'd be speculating. But we do know 
that their request is motivated by sinful ambition. They don't desire a place of prominence for the others. They don't say, Lord, grant us this request that Matthew and Thomas may sit on your left and your right. Lord, grant us this request that Philip and Bartholomew may have places of elevated authority in your kingdom. They don't ask for that. They ask, grant us that my brother and I, we want to be top dog. People want to start out in the boardroom when they need to start out in the mailroom. We are so quick in the church to elevate new converts to celebrity status. So quick to elevate people to positions of leadership and authority and responsibility when they have yet to show themselves faithful. Dangerous. Dangerous. Paul warns in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 6. He said in the, in the selection of leadership, the person should not be a new convert. Why? Because they'll become conceited and they'll fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. What was that condemnation that was incurred by the devil? It was pride. It was pride. Being involved in the leadership of the church can be a great source of pride. It's very dangerous. Very, very dangerous. Chuck Colson says that power is like salt water. The more you drink, the thirstier you get. And Chuck Colson would be able to speak on this, wouldn't he? Because at one point in his life, Chuck Colson was one of the most powerful men in the world. He had unhindered access to President Nixon, the most powerful man in the world of that time. So the request for greatness is a very, very serious request. The requirement for greatness, though, is suffering. Look at verse 38. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking for. You do not know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Jesus reminds them really that they're forgetting something. What they're forgetting is that before there is a crown, there is first a cross. The cross comes before the crown. You know, there's interesting irony in their request, isn't there? At that moment in Christ's life of his greatest triumph, as he was nailed there upon that cross, who was on his left and his right? couple of thieves, right? A couple of thieves. Closeness to Christ means sharing in his cup, sharing in his baptism. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, he asks? The expression here refers to identifying or undergoing an experience. Sometimes it's spoken of favorably, Look with me back at Psalm chapter 23. You can see that there. Psalm 23 and verse 5 says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. My cup overflows. Over to Psalm 116, verse 13. 
I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. The idea of a cup is to undergo an experience. It can be a favorable experience or it can be an unfavorable experience. For example, Psalm 11. Take a look at Psalm 11 and verse 6. We don't really speak like that, like this today, but Psalm 11 and verse 6, upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. Okay, so it can be a favorable experience, it can be an unfavorable experience, but when Christ speaks of his cup, he's always speaking of his suffering. He's speaking of his cup of suffering. There in the garden at Gethsemane, Matthew Chapter 26, take a look at that. There in the Garden of Gethsemane, he talks about his cup. Verse 39 of chapter 26 of Matthew says, He went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Verse 42, and he went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. There was a, a cup of suffering, a cup of suffering. And so what Jesus is asking them is if they are willing to become partakers of his suffering. He's asking them, he's, he's saying, are you willing to partake of my suffering, a, a suffering that is most fully manifested on the cross? When all the scorn, all the riddle, all the humiliation of mankind, the wrath of the Father will be poured out on him. And he says also, are you willing to be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized? The verb baptism that's, that's translated baptized rather has a, the meaning to dip, right? Or to plunge or to immerse or to drown. And it, and it can be used metaphorically of being overwhelmed with suffering, overwhelmed by agony, drown in it, if you will. And so when Jesus questions them here in verse 38, he's, he's asking them, are you spiritually ready to join me in my sufferings? That's his question to them. The requirement for greatness is suffering. Are you willing to join me in my suffering? Verse 39, they said to him, we are able. We are able. It's a rather rapid response to such a profound and searching question, isn't it? I think they misunderstood his question. I think they thought he was asking them, did they have courage? Did they have the moral courage to face what he might face? And that's not what he was interested in. He was not interested in what kind of strength or courage they possessed in and of themselves. He was asking them, are you spiritually ready for what it takes to be great in the kingdom of God? Are you willing to suffer? Of course, we know on the night of his arrest, what happened to them? They vanished. They vanished. Even Peter, who said, Lord, I'll die with you if I need to. They all vanished, didn't they? They were not ready. They were not ready. We are able, they said in verse 39. Jesus said to them prophetically, the cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. Indirectly, he is prophesying of their ultimate demise, isn't he? James, we know, was martyred for the faith early on, 10 years or so after this time. 
He lost his head. His head was cut off by Herod. And John, the last of the disciples, the only one not to die a violent death, the author of the final book of the New Testament, the book of the Revelation, lived a long life, but not a life free from suffering and persecution. You can read in Fox's Book of Martyrs that John at one point was plunged in boiling oil as part of his persecution. And there, at the end of his life, he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, wasn't he? And it was there that he received the visions of the book of the Revelation. So they did suffer, and Christ prophesied it for them. But to sit on my right or on my left, he says in verse 40, this is not mine to give but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Jesus is saying, I don't have the ability, I don't have the authority to even hand out these positions. I can't do this as a mere personal favor to you. I cannot and I will not act like an earthly monarch dispensing favors from my throne. The Son is in loving subjection to the Father. These positions is a perfect tense verb here, for whom it has been prepared. And what it means is that it has already been settled, this matter. Who they are that will sit left and right has already been settled. Christ is not going to reveal that at this time. It's difficult, Colson says again, to stand on a pedestal and wash the feet of those below. Greatness requires suffering. Greatness requires suffering. The road to that greatness is service, he says. The road is service. Verse 41. And hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. This is really an understatement, isn't it? The ten betray their own pettiness. The ten betray their own spiritual shallowness by being indignant. The verb that's translated indignant here it denotes a strong emotional response. They are moved with anger, it says over in verse 14 of this same chapter. The same verb translated there. They are angry. They are hot under the collar. They can't believe that James and John have slipped in ahead of them. That's what's going on here. James and John scooped them. They got in their request first for the best seats in the house, and, and these guys are ticked. Amazing. Just amazing, isn't it? They are righteously indignant, huh? How many times do we use that expression to cover up our own sinful, prideful anger? can't believe the audacity of these two guys to do this. Just amazing. Verse 42, Jesus calling them to himself, he said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. Jesus rebukes them. He calls the whole group together. He uses this as a, a launching point for a lesson. 
the lesson that we really need to have driven home to us tonight with regard to spiritual greatness. How do we become great in the kingdom of God? He rebukes them for their common ignorance about the very nature of spiritual leadership. And he says basically that the worldly principles of leadership here are going to be the antithesis of what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. Christian leadership is humble leadership. It is servant leadership because it takes its, its cue from the founder who was the most humble man there ever was. The way of worldly people is to exercise dominance over other people, isn't it? Isn't that how bosses operate out there in the world? They use their position for personal gain and for taking advantage. How many times have you seen those in authority over you, those are your, your supervisors or your bosses who will, who will use their positions of authority for their own personal gain? I spent 16 years working in commercial banking for some of the biggest banks in America. Over and over again, you could see such things. People carving out their kingdoms. People setting up their fiefdoms. Always manipulating one or another. All for their own personal advantage. That's the way of the world. As a, as a child, we used to play the game King of the Mountain. How many of you have ever played King of the Mountain? Hmm? What is the object of the game King of the Mountain? To stay on top. And how do you stay on top? You push everybody else off who tries to come up, don't you? Isn't that how the game is played? That's the way the world operates. On the playground, it's King of the Mountain. When you get out into the corporate world, it's just good business practices. To squash anyone who tries to come near you. They spend all their energy getting to the top, and once having reached it, they cause all the others to feel the weight of their authority. That's what Jesus is saying here. He said, you know that those who are recognized, verse 42, as rulers of the Gentiles, lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. That's the way the world operates. The guy on top pushes everybody else down. That's how he stays on top. I remember many years ago, this would have been in the mid-80s, I went to work for Wells Fargo Business Credit. They don't exist anymore, so I can talk about them. They got sold. But I remember my first day on the job, my boss took me around and showed me all the executive offices. And as he would open the door, this was at lunchtime, of course everybody was gone, he would open the door to the office and he would say, now step in there. And I'd step in and he'd say, what do you notice? And I'd begin to point out furniture or wall hangings or whatever. And he said, no, 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 no. He said, step back out here in the hall. So I'd step back out in the hall. He'd say, all right, now step back in there again. I'd step back in again. He said, now what do you notice? And I said, this cushion under the carpet. <laughs> he said, that's right. This cushion, this padding under the carpet. So we started with the senior vice president's office and we felt the level of pad under his carpet. And then we went to the executive vice president's office and we stepped in there and we felt the level of padding under his. Guess what? More pad. Nicer wallpaper too, by the way. Then we went to the president's office and we stepped in there and it was like a pillow top bed. I mean, it was just so cushiony. 
power, prestige, perquisites, right? Positions, perks. It's what the world is all about. Verse 43. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. The first thing we need to notice from this verse is that Jesus does not condemn the aspiration to be great. It is not wrong to want to be great in the kingdom of God. That is not a sinful desire. To be mightily used of God is not a sinful desire. And in fact, it's a very commendable desire. Turn with me to 1 Timothy, chapter 3. It's important that we understand this and make a distinction with regard to biblical leadership. 1 Timothy, chapter 3, and verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement. That type of citation Paul uses a half a dozen times in the pastoral epistles to remind the people of something that is true, saying you can go to the bank on this. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, episcopos, it is a fine work he desires to do. It is a good thing. It is a fine thing to aspire to leadership in the church of God, to want to be an elder in the church of Jesus Christ is a fine thing to do, Paul says. Back to Mark chapter 10. Notice, don't miss it, that Jesus is not ever condemning the aspiration for greatness. All he condemns is the means by which these disciples were pursuing it. And he points to a better way. It is a commendable thing to want to be a leader in the church of God. But the Christian leader gets off track when he or she thinks that leadership is a prize to be pursued by worldly means or it's a prerogative to be exercised in a worldly manner. That's where we go wrong. I am the teaching pastor of this church. It is a position that has been entrusted to me by God and by you, based on certain giftedness that God has given me. But I am not the boss of the church. This is not my church. We went over this two weeks ago, right? This is not my church. This is not your church. This is not our church. This is whose church? This is God's church. This is God's church. So I am not the church boss. I do not have the inherent authority to run the place. And this is a real challenge for me, beloved, because when I left banking, I managed a commercial lending group. And there I did have a lot of authority and a lot of people that worked for me. And I could say, go here and do this and go there and do that. And it is really easy for me to be drawn back into that old way of doing business. And it is something that I have to reject. And I have to, you have to help me reject such things. So don't call me and ask me 
questions that all the time about should I, should I paint this that color or, you know, do this over here or do that over there because what you do when you ask me those kinds of questions is you tempt me to give you an answer. Because it would be really easy for me to just sit there and say, paint that building blue and move that box over there and cut a doorway there and do this and do that. But that would not be servant leadership. It's an unforgettable paradox, verse 43. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Shall be your servant. Is the exact opposite of the world. It is inverted pyramid. In the world, there is a pyramid that goes this way, isn't there? Everybody's on the bottom supporting the guy who's what? On top. In the Christian church, the pyramid's flipped upside down. And who's on the bottom of the pyramid? What does it say? Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your what? Shall be your servant. Who is at the bottom of the pile? The leaders. The leaders is exactly opposite the way the world would have it. The word is dekinos. It's the word for deacon. The word for minister or helper. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your deacon. Shall be your servant, shall be your helper, shall be your minister, is what he's saying. The path towards greatness in the kingdom of God is a path that is pursued by serving other people. You want to be great? The way up is down. The way up is down. He elaborates it a little further. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. You want to be the best of the best? You want to be the greatest in the kingdom? Not only do you have to be a servant of all, you have to be a what? You have to be a slave. You have to become the lowest position in society. The slave of the New Testament time had no rights. He was owned by his master. He had to do the most menial and lowly of tasks. You want to be first, become a slave of everybody. You want to be great, just serve people, is what he's saying. There's, there's sort of two things going on here. You want to be great in the kingdom of God, be a servant. Serve people and you will become great. Do you want to become the greatest? Then you've got to be a slave to everybody. That's a price few people are willing to pay. Very few people are willing to pay that kind of price. The test is not what kind of service can I extract from you. The test is what kind of service can I give you. And then verse 45, he sort of drives the final nail in it here. See, it starts with the word for. You see that? That means it's an explanation. He's going to explain the reason for all that has gone before. 
Why is it that it is like this in the kingdom of God? Why is it not like the world? Why is not leadership in the church of God pursued the same way that leadership is pursued in the secular world? Why don't you get ahead in the same way? Why don't we look for the same kind of people, strong, natural leaders who are successful in the business world? Those should be the leaders in the church, right? Wrong. Why? Why is it that we look for people who are servants, people who are lowly of heart? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The justification for ordering the kingdom of God in this way is because that's how the messianic king operates. When Christ came... He modeled this principle of leadership and greatness, didn't he? When he came, he came as one who was humble and gentle of heart. He came as a slave to all. Isn't that not true? The most lowly and downcast of society, Christ came and served them. And not only that, but ultimately, he went to the cross and poured out his blood to redeem them. Since Christ didn't come to be served, but to serve, therefore his followers can expect their roles to be no different than his. That's the point he's making. He is our highest example. He is the servant of Jehovah. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. When he came into the city, he came in in the lowliest of ways. The request for greatness is a serious request. The requirement for greatness is suffering, and the road to greatness is service. So you may be the most gifted person here in this church. You may be the most knowledgeable Bible scholar we have among us. You may be the most talented person available to us. But if you do not have a heart of humble servant leadership, a willingness to pour yourself out, for others, you're disqualified right from the start. Right from the start. Do you have some questions maybe that have arisen in your mind as we've gone through this? Or something that is fuzzy and you would like to have clarified? This is the most dangerous time when I allow you to ask questions. See, before this... I've got my notes and I know what I'm going to say. It's hard stuff, isn't it? Cuts right across the grain of all that we are. Greg.
So since I don't aspire to leadership, I'm out from underneath the humility commands. Yeah. No. <laughs> right? God is opposed to whom? The proud. But He gives grace to the humble. I don't know about you, but I don't ever want to be in a category that God says He's opposed to. Hmm? To have God opposed to me puts me in a pretty frightful position. But I think to address your question more directly than that, somebody who has no desire to serve, sees no need to serve, has a pride problem to begin with. I mean, we need to, to go back and address that. They don't understand their relationship, perhaps, to the body and their need to serve and their need to be served, that interrelationship, one dependent upon the other. So if we assume then that they just don't understand that and they need to be taught and brought along in that area, um, that would be the way to approach it. If after having been taught and brought along in that area, when Jesus said a servant is not greater than his master, he's saying that what, what is going to come upon me is going to come upon you. Don't think that somehow as as my servants, that you're going to escape what's coming to me. And I believe in the context there, and I, I don't know the verse off the top of my head. I'm not sure I could find it. But Dennis is down there working hard on it and going to whisper it up to me. Dennis, maybe we should get like some cue cards. What do you think? <laughs> then you write the answer out and hold it up so I can see it. I think in that context, it's talking about persecution, if I remember right. And he's saying that basically, if they killed me, they're going to kill you. They're going to persecute you, I think. So, I mean, there's just so much worldliness in, in the church, isn't there? So much pride, so much meism that, that infects the church. And, and we're all susceptible to it. You know, it, it's just subtle kind of sneaks in and you, we have to we have to be reminded of a truth like this and we have to um, fight against our natural tendencies I've been part of half a dozen churches maybe a little bit more in the 25 years that I've been a believer and many many times have I seen uh, people in leadership particularly men in leadership that were disqualified on this basis alone to be there yet there they were they have been elevated because of their success in the business world. They've been elevated to the leadership of God's church, and they had no more idea about how the church of God ought to run than, than the man on the moon. And it's just disastrous. Any others? There's a danger, by the way, in, in bringing this kind of teaching to you, and that is... Um, it puts the leadership of this church on trial before you. I mean, we're already there on trial before God, and maybe already before you too, but, but now we've pointed this out and reinforced it and, and talked about the necessity for it, and now we are rightly held accountable to such things. So pray for us that we would be servant leaders. Pray for the unity of the leadership of this church, that there would be an attitude of humility that would prevail 
among us, that there would be no one man or a group of men who would get in a position where their own personal desires would begin to take over and they would want to shape the church after their own uh, desires. But there would be just this idea that they want to serve each other and they want to serve you. And if we're not serving you, then you need to tell us. You need to be, have courage enough to come up and say, David, go read Mark chapter 10 again. <laughs> Let's pray. God, our Father, we acknowledge right up front that our obedience in this area is less than full. Lord God, we acknowledge right up front, I acknowledge, Father, personally, that pride and arrogance are a constant companion, a constant threat, a constant temptation. And Lord God, I confess that without your Spirit's empowerment, I have no hope of overcoming them. I pray, Father, this evening for all of us here and for myself in particular, that you would enable us to walk in humility, that we would not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but that we should consider ourselves soberly. As we spoke of this morning, our Father, we are nothing more than the steam above a cup of hot coffee, here for a moment and gone. Unable, our Father, to make any meaningful, permanent, significant change in this world, unable our Father to affect human life in any enduring fashion, unable to regenerate a dead soul, unable to heal a broken body, unable to change the environment in which we live. Lord God, we are weak and frail, and we ought not boast as if we have some sort of inherent authority. So, our Father, we confess that all authority is derived from you. Lord God, help us to model our Savior. May humility and meekness be our characteristics. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.